1: Thanks for downloading the highly relevant podcast. But before we begin the show, I want to talk to you about the All of Us research program. Hispanics are the largest ethnic minorities in the USA, up to 18% of the population. However, we are underrepresented in research studies, only 10%. This gap means that researchers know less about our health. Hispanics deserve to be represented in studies so we can know more about our health and be as healthy as possible. As our population grows, so should our participation. Create a better future by participating. Just visit joinallofus.org slash highlyrelevant. Welcome to episode 161 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, a show about how Latinx pop culture is reshaping mainstream entertainment. I'm your host, Jack Rico, and my featured guest this week.
2: When I got to Latina, one of the things that I wanted to do was kind of separate this platform from being just a lifestyle entertainment magazine to becoming more as well as a place where there were kind of these more intellectual, cultural conversations going on.
1: That is Camila Legaspi. She is the chief content officer of Latina Media Ventures, the company which owns Latina magazine, who is joining me this week for an in-depth discussion on the relaunch of Latina.com. We discuss why the brand took a hiatus, why it decided to return, and what role will it play for this new generation of Latinas. But before we get to Camila, it's time I give you my weekly recap of the top Latinx pop culture headlines in a segment I like to call Jacked In let okay. Let's begin with the top movie TV music news of the week. Netflix's Latinx dramedy Hentified is returning for season two on November 10th. Rosario Dawson joins the cast of Disney's Haunted Mansion movie. Rosalind Sanchez's Fantasy Island on Fox is close to renewing a second season. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade will return to New York streets for 2021 holiday. Camila Cabello's Cinderella on Amazon Prime pulls in over one million households. Jose Diaz-Balart leaves Noticias Telemundo to return hosting a new MSNBC weekday show. Actress Jessica Pimentel from Orange is the New Black joins the Aubrey Plaza movie All the dies dreaming. Janet Jackson drops teaser for a new documentary, This Is My Story Told By Me. The Matrix 4 releases its first teaser trailer, and Disney announced that Eternals, West Side Story, Encanto and The Last Duel will hit theaters first before going to Disney+. And in second social media news, Facebook debuts Ray-Ban Stories, smart glasses that record video. Spotify's new enhanced feature will spruce up your playlists with recommended songs. Twitter is testing emoji reactions for tweets. Marvel Unlimited relaunches with exclusive phone-optimized comics and a fresh new look. Instagram will require users to provide their birthday. Snapchat launches a new feature that helps track friends' birthdays. TikTok reportedly overtakes YouTube in the U.S. average watch time and Microsoft will let you control an Xbox with a TV remote soon. During the early 2000s, Latina magazine was the preeminent voice of the new modern Latina. It was essential reading. Even men were reading it. I was one of them. I actually came out a few times in them. The magazine spoke to a growing population of second-generation Latinas that wanted to explore the duality of their American culture. It captured how it was to be bicultural and bilingual in America. Regrettably, in 2018, the magazine folded due to the same financial woes that struck other brands like Glamour and Teen Vogue. But the digital extension is alive and well under its new leader, Chief Content Officer Camila Legaspi. The 25-year-old Princeton graduate has been tasked in preserving the legacy of the brand while evolving it for a new Latina audience. That's no easy feat, and I would argue that no Hispanic media company of scale has been able to do it successfully yet. Will she be the one to crack the code? Camila Legaspi, welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. It's a pleasure to have you here. We're going to be talking about the 25th anniversary of Latina Magazine and the brand. Uh, But before we get to that and this new Latina Magazine that you are now in charge of, I want to know a little bit more about you, Camila. Let's start off with you. I know you went to Princeton and you studied uh, cultural and intellectual history. You then went to Mike and you got your beginnings there. Then you went over to Blackstone and you worked in the real estate development area. And then you became the head of development over at Latina Magazine, where now you become the chief content officer, basically in charge of a treasure for a lot of Latinas that are now Gen Xers that still remember the magazine back from the early 90s and, and, and the 2000s where it was truly, you know, sort of the, the, the brand of our community, whether it was female or male, uh, Latina magazine, people in Espanol, you know, Univision and Telemundo, the four of them really created what was the Latino community in the United States. How did you end up becoming the chief content officer at Latina.
2: Yes, well, it's definitely a very um, zigzaggy tale, as you can as you can see, and even as you pointed out. But um, you know, just to start, you know, from the beginning and and kind of go into exactly how I took on that role. You know, a little bit of background about myself is that I'm Mexican, super mexicana, chilanga. Um, both of my parents grew up in Mexico City came over to the U.S. um, after college to, you know, build a new life here. And so I grew up Mexican-American in New York. I was the only Mexican girl always, always in my school, always everywhere, um, until Princeton, actually Princeton really opened my eyes to a bunch of different Latinos from different communities. But that being said, it was always a huge part of my identity. And it was never something that I thought I would specifically dedicate my career toward. I knew I wanted to go into media, you know, being Latina is a huge part of my identity. So those were always two kind of underlying themes of my life. And in college, I worked at Mike. The, the anecdote that I always give about Mike is that I used to be, um, I worked for the head of communications there and I used to, and I would sit in the office with all the executives and um, they would always be having these conversations. Like, how do we Appeal to millennials. They're, they would have like I was in college. I was a millennial, and they would be having these conversations like, "What what content should we put forward? Like, what do we do?" And I was like, "Call on me, pick me. I'm a millennial. I can tell you <laughs> what, what, what to do, what to say." And I, and that's kind of the same feeling I had with Latin media. I feel like mm. right, my brother works for Context. My brother works at Univision. You know, these these are conversations we're always having on our in our household. And I felt like I'm. 25. I'm Mexican American. My peers are all Latinos. Like they're all creative. They're all in the industry. Like, how can we change the narrative? How can we, how can we, um, how can we adjust, uh, the, the representation that's occurring right now? So those are kind of ideas that were always floating around. I wanted to work in media I uh, kind of followed the the train of finance people at Princeton going into Blackstone, and so that was really something that I felt like, you know, I wanted to establish um, kind of some fundamentals in business. I wanted to even, you know, for a female Latina, I think it's um, in a lot of ways uh, paving a way um, to go into finance, and so that was kind of my mindset there. Mm. I always wanted to go back into media. So what happened there is once I left Blackstone, I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. I had been brainstorming, starting a media company with a friend, kind of every conversation that we had.
1: By the way, to interject, what was the media company you wanted to start? I'm very curious.
2: It was not specifically a lot in media company. I would say the way that we described it Was kind of a combination of like Refinery 29, like a more intellectualized sort of like female platform, is how I would put it.
1: So I'm sure you've incorporated a lot of what you were originally thinking with your own media company into the Latina vision.
2: What has always been my favorite part about media is reading these stories about sort of regular people who have um, overcome certain hurdles or who have broken bears in their community or who have excelled and, and reading these profiles on them, right? Um, New Yorker is a publication that does an amazing job of doing that. And so um, when I got to Latina, one of the things that I wanted to do was kind of separate this platform from being just a lifestyle entertainment magazine to becoming more as well as a place where there were kind of these more intellectual, cultural conversations going on. And I'll get to that in a bit. I mean, just to finish answering the last question, I ended up, you know, I was having these conversations at this media company. Um, I was put in touch with a friend. They were looking to hire someone at Latina to kind of build out business development. I started working there. And then when I actually got there, it's so funny because I think this was kind of exactly a year ago. And when I first got there, I came in with like all of these ideas and I was so excited. And I was like, this is what we're gonna do, this is gonna do this, we're gonna do this, is what we're, gonna do, this is what we're gonna do. And the person who's the editor at large, who her name is Bertie Baldonado, and she's been at Latina forever. She was the fashion editor there for a long time. Um she was like whoa, 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 like keep in mind that this is a brand that has <laughs> existed forever. Right. And then exactly as you said, is a treasure for so many people and like everything we do you have to understand that we're like, not only going to appeal to this new generation of Latinos, but we're also appealing to people that have followed this magazine since its inception in 1996. And you would
1: be disrupting that that chain of identity of those years that would lead into the enhancement of the brand if you have everybody associated with it of every age. Totally,
2: exactly. and. It's so interesting because one of the first things i realized going into the platform and trying to start kind of building out sort of my perception of what it should be which has changed one million times since i started there um was that i realized i was bringing in my perception of what it meant to be latina so i was coming into the platform with like my background being a mexican-american girl raised in new york city with family in mexico city like one of the first things that virgie told me she was like keep in mind there are more latinos than just mexicans in the u.s you know like i was coming in with my background
1: colombiano
2: colombiano exactly and muchos colombianos en todo el país and that was something that um it seems kind of obvious but it's with with these latin platforms i think something that is really difficult is that our narratives and our backgrounds are so different. And it's how do we create platforms that both celebrate all these different voices and cultures, but also create kind of a thread um, between all of them where we can all sort of understand each other and learn from each other. And so um, that was certainly the kind of biggest obstacle, and it continues to be, is trying to figure out um, how do we appeal to everyone? Like everyone always asks what's your what's your target woman or man? What's your target audience? Like if you had to describe your reader in one sentence, who's that reader? And it's like, how am I, how can we answer that? You know, who is it? Is it the, is it the, you know, Puerto Rican student in Washington Heights? Is it the Chicana in LA? Is it the you know Colombiano in upstate New York? Like how do we, how can we really answer that? And so where we have come to um, is really that we are trying to be this place of intersection of culture and identity for Latinos. And we're trying to, we're trying to be that space for Latinos, regardless of identity. So while we have been, you know, primarily kind of, a um, a platform for women, I really think we're trying to shift to be a platform for everyone. And, um, mm. we will always be a place that focuses on female stories and amplifies female voices. And, um, and, you know, obviously our name Latina is reflective of that. But there are new generations of Latinos that are looking for new things that are edgier and and more culturally interested and kind of like speaking. In fact, a lot of them don't speak Spanish and are trying to um, assimilate themselves in a new culture that is that has been made by them. That is like Latinx culture that is no longer like them trying to enter uh, American culture. So it's kind of like this new Movement is happening, and we want to be a space for everyone in that
1: movement. So one one of the things I also wanted to to note, you're a 25 year old C suite executive now in the magazine industry. Tell me how you're handling that. What the reaction to that has been, and how are you intimidated by the title? Are you intimidated by the moment? Are
2: it's a great question, and I think it's something that comes up, you know, every single day um, because. Either it's something that is really advantageous or it's something that's really hard. And so mm. I think the way that it is advantageous and and I think, you know, exactly like you said, Teen Vogue has been actually, I think, the platform that has paved the way for this. Um, because I think what Teen Vogue did um, and kind of a few years ago is realize that having someone who knew what people were feeling and thinking went a long way. And they kind of, I feel like, revolutionized their platform to be much more geared towards social justice and to be much more vocal and to take a stance on certain issues. And I think people noticed that. Um, and I think that magazines or platforms weren't necessarily doing that before. So Teen Vogue is certainly a really good example um, that I look towards in terms of how they did it and how it worked for them. Um, and so in that sense, I think that being in charge is, is certainly very helpful in that um, I think that a lot, of, um, a lot of what I deal with on a daily basis in terms of what content are we putting out, um, who do we want to put on our covers, who do we want to feature, I think that being 25 and kind of knowing um, what conversations are going on and what people are thinking and what the social climate is, is very helpful. I even think that in terms of that I'm a little like older. You know, I feel like that that the Gen Zers are really are really the people that that know and are kind of the tastemakers in terms of pop culture and what's happening. So, um I think in that sense it's really helpful. I think in the sense that um a lot of my peers are creatives, um so you know, I have friends who are musicians, I have friends who are photographers, I have friends who are filmmakers. Um that is really helpful one in having resources but also in just knowing their lives and, you know, what they deal with on a daily basis and being able to, I think, cultivate relationships where there's a lot of mutual respect because it's not like I'm a, and you know, there are phenomenal um, C-suite executives who are older and everything, but it's not like I necessarily am like looking down on these people that are working for me. Um, These are, these are my equals a hundred percent. Like, even though, yes, I am in charge they are a hundred percent my equal, then I'm learning from them. And then a lot of the people that I work with are older than me too. So I'm learning from them as well.
1: <laughs> are, is it weird for them? Yes,
2: it is very weird for them, I think. But but I also I I think I've also, you know, I think I am definitely, you know, a little, a little personal tidbit here, I think I'm mature for my age as well. You know, I I lost my mom when I was 16 years old. So I I raised my siblings. I I was always forced to be, you know, very independent, um,
1: responsible, right?
2: Responsible, kind of like look out for myself. I definitely think I've been a fighter my whole life. So um, so that that has also obviously um taken a, taken part in terms of the way that I interact with adults when I enter a room and and it's all people who are older than me and we're having a conversation or a meeting or when I'm talking to brands and everyone who's in the meeting is older than me. I think that <laughs> I kind of like fighter mentality. Kids yeah. And, oh, I've done this. Like, I've been in difficult situations before.
1: Do you feel like you have to prove yourself constantly? And how much stress is that taking away from you?
2: Yes, I do feel like it depends with the people. I think that when I'm talking to people who have been in the industry for a long time and who I have a lot of respect for, it's not necessarily that I feel like I have to prove myself, but I definitely think there's more intimidation there. And I just think that comes from like, I feel a tremendous amount of respect for a lot of the people that I'm interacting with. Um, a lot of people that have been, you know, Latinos that have been in the industry for a long time and know how hard it's been and know, you know, the conversation that I'm having right now where I'm like, Oh, we have to do this, this, and this, like they've had that conversation 500 times throughout their career. And so I think that's when I feel intimidated. And I think that, you know, I've had, um, Berkey, who's the editor at large, kind of be, I think, my anchor in all of this, because I think that especially in the beginning, and this was before I was chief content officer, um, but especially in the beginning when I had ideas or when I had certain conversations, I think she was always the person to kind of either like bring me down to reality or kind of give that older perspective. And so she has also played a huge role in helping me kind of navigate. Yeah. She's
1: the yin to your yang.
2: A hundred percent. I always, I always say that. And I, and I, and I, um, you know, the launch would not have been possible without her. And she is also always behind the scenes kind of every time I'm trying to figure out, um, you know, a difficult decision, you know, she's the first person that I go to. And so, um, I think I, some of the youngest, you know, CEOs I know are some of the most impressive. Um, There's a there's a there's a company parade. The CEO is uh, 26, 24 years old, uh, daughter of Colombian immigrants. Um, She is the youngest Latina to raise the amount of money that she has. Um, And again, she's 24 and she's breaking barriers in 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 our um, in the industry that she's in. And so
1: I think the owner of Bumble, the app is like a billionaire now. She's in her 20s, right?
2: she just yeah i think she she's she just turned 30 or something but exactly yeah but she that,
1: started it in her 20s yeah started
2: in her 20s exactly and you obviously have all these examples of these um phenomenal people that have done it and i think that what i did read recently that made me that i think kind of um uh reflected how i feel is that when i used to read about a lot of those people i would think like oh they're so lucky like they they figured it out they 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 just must have been really lucky. Doesn't that suck? 100%. And now I'm like, oh, it's not luck. It's just that you literally work your ass off every single day, nonstop. So that's, that's, that's essentially what my life is right now, but it's worth it and it's amazing because I love what I'm doing.
1: What happened to Latina Magazine when it took its hiatus? There were people that thought it folded there were people that thought that it was never coming back, that it had retired. A lot of people thought it, it flopped, it failed, it imploded, it collapsed. Then the word hiatus has been used, which is very interesting. The New York Post said that initially Latina magazine was suffering from financial issues. Now this is something that's not just particular to Latina Magazine, but it's been particular to the whole magazine industry, where we've seen those ad prices go down and have the reinvention of digital from print over to digital. But what exactly happened? Why did Latina just stop doing their news on the website and in the magazine. We didn't see it in the newsstands anymore yet. We saw the re-emergence uh, of Hola USA. People in Espanol kept on going strong. They even launched, uh, I think, a side magazine called Chica, which to me I thought was the replacement of like a Latina magazine. So what happened?
2: I think the easiest uh, explanation really is to do with the print and magazine industry. You know, I think that, um, some survived and some didn't, um, and obviously it was before my time, so I don't know the specifics. Um, but I do know that it was hit pretty badly by that um, kind of transformation into the digital space. Um, and I think, obviously, when you you know when you look at Latina, one of the first things it'll tell you is about all these financial troubles. And I think that um, essentially what it did was. Take a step back. And I do think you know, all the words you're using, by the way, in terms of like hold it, implode it, um, they're not wrong. Mm. Um, there certainly was a lot of financial difficulty. I think that um there there was a lot of leadership changing that changes that were happening, and again, and I wasn't there, so I, I can only speak to kind of what I have heard and what I have read and what I know from the people within Latina. But there were a lot of leadership changes. There was a lot of, um, it kind of seems like chaos. Um, And I think that a lot of that was caused by the fact that it was just a really hard industry to be in. And couple that with obviously the fact that it's really hard to be kind of like the pioneering um, magazine for Latina women. Um, it's already even now. I'm seeing how tough it is to get advertisers to get brands. So
1: why is it still tough? Even though the numbers, the census numbers, just reflect constantly every ten years that we are the shit.
2: It's <laughs> mind-boggling to me. It is but what tough. is
1: it? Do you think it's racism, Camila?
2: I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's racism. I think that um, a lot of corporations and major corporations, which is where you know a lot of the money comes from in advertising, um, in magazines and digital platforms, I think they have a set amount of what they call multicultural marketing or multicultural advertising that goes to certain platforms. And it's kind of like, okay, well, this is the money that we will use to advertise to black and Brown people. And they have a whole bureaucracy that comes along with that. And they have a whole um, calendar that comes along with that. So if you're kind of a, um, and right now I do really view ourselves as like a small player in the field coming in and trying to establish these relationships. Like you, you, you know, you have to have kind of a whole system built out. You have to know the bureaucracy. You have to know when to go in in the, in the fiscal year, like when you have to know that, Oh, you have to go in a year before in order to get these multicultural dollars. And like, these are all things that honestly, I think if we were just a regular platform, we wouldn't have to deal with we wouldn't have to be told like, Oh, sorry, the, 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 um, the, the budget for Hispanic heritage month for this year has already been used. You know what I mean? Like, those are things that I'm hearing right now. And so I can only imagine how that has been a challenge and a struggle. In- well, I
1: feel like this is a systemic issue. This isn't something that happened today. I believe that this is systemic. And when something is systemic and you put those laws into practice, then that becomes discrimination. And this is a form of critical race theory. It's just interweaved in every aspect of our lives. And I feel like most of us have been talking about uh, all these social justice issues, but when it comes to the profession, that's when you start thinking to yourself, wait a minute, the numbers say this. The people are saying the right things. Everyone's in agreement that you should be giving us more money, yet you're not. And at that's at that point that I feel like someone has to speak up and say, look, this is flat out discrimination, even racist at some point. Because if you're specifically making sure that we don't get the amount of money that white Americans get and white outlets get, then somebody needs to bring this up in a more serious manner, like the way that that I, I believe it was Dominion went up to Fox News and said, hey, you said something bad on air. We're going to sue you for eight billion dollars or something like that. So I think at some point somebody needs to do that. And I know this is a challenge for you, but I, I already thought that this was already handled after the George Floyd experience.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that after the George Floyd experience, you have so many people on the surface and so many corporations on the surface, like acting like everything has is fixed and acting like they have, oh, we donated X amount of money to social justice organizations, like we're good. And that's so not the case, you know, behind the scenes at all of these corporations, there's so much work to be done. I have so much respect for the few brands that have... Um, worked with us and responded Mm -hmm. to us and tried to cultivate a relationship with us. A lot of the people at those brands that have responded are Latinos. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's the people that take the chance on us. I, I, this is something that I never realized would be part of the, of the job. I really, and I think maybe that comes from a sense of entitlement from like having gone to Princeton and then working at Blackson, where I was like, oh, everyone's just going to respond to me. And like, I, <laughs> I was like pitching these things that I thought were so obvious, like these like <laughs> numbers that like Latinos are literally like the fastest growing demographic in the country that like our population growth is due to Latinos. Like our economic growth is because of Latinos, like showing these these beautiful presentations
1: and, and no one cares.
2: And no one cares. No one cares. And it's
1: it's and discrimination, Camila. It's discrimination.
2: It's crazy. It's totally crazy. And so I and it's so funny because after we a lot of this was happening before we relaunched. So a lot of the a lot of the pre-launch um you know on my end was trying to find brands and to find partnerships. And I got like zero responses. And then after we launched and after we were kind of making headlines and, you know, a lot of people were reposting our things, like some people, resp- some people started being like, oh, I- I'm so sorry I didn't respond to your email from 10 months ago, like would love to pick up the conversation. And so I just... And, and I, and I, and I won't say names, but there are a few brands out there that I have a lot of respect Let's for.
1: get names. Let's get <laughs> names. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a lot of
2: respect for. I'm sure you'll see them pop up in our, in our work, um, in, in the future, but there are just, you know, respect to the people in these major corporations who are taking risks because it is not an easy feat. And I now I've seen it firsthand and, um, and it all, and it is all black and brown people, so respect.
1: My my next question has to do with the editorial and the tone of this new magazine. Now you were briefly talking about it, uh, but I kinda wanna get into detail on this new vision. And before I begin with that, let's start off with the word Latina. I feel like for the last couple of, maybe year and a half, two years, we've been at odds with the term for how to describe us. Latina, Latino, Hispanic, and now Latinx. What does Latinx mean to you, Camila? And how is that definition imprinted in the magazine today?
2: Yeah, you're asking this at a good time because it is definitely something that we have been talking about a lot. Like, I think there was a poll in the last two weeks and Gallup released a poll that basically showed that Latinos have no preference um, between Latina, Latino, and Hispanic, and Latinx. I mean, the polls do show that Latinx is certainly the one that is the least used and the least known. Like,
1: I don't identify as Latinx, but I do use Latinx to be inclusive of everybody else.
2: Exactly. And I am the same. I am now actually shifting towards Latin. I, have, I had heard it before because people use the E in Mexico. Um, because the X obviously is not something that you can really say out loud. So you know, in interviews and conversations we've had with um, non-binary individuals, they have used the E. We were thinking about our relaunch. Actually, one of the things we were thinking was, like, should we change the name of the platform to Latin X? You know, this was also you know a year ago. Like you couldn't really use, I, and that's not even that you couldn't really use it, but like I wasn't even really using Latina or Latino because I, I really felt like um Line X was sort of the label that was within my community within my echo chamber And for the new
1: generation of Latinos generation. in this country.
2: Exactly, exactly. So the way that we saw it um and the way we still see it is that Latina um is really an ode to the women that started the company. You know, the mm. the Christy, the 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 founder um a trailblazer in her industry, um, started this magazine and it was built up by Latina women, but we did change our mission statement to reflect that it is a place for Latinx individuals, um, regardless of identity. And, you know, my, my stance on Latinx is, is probably quite similar to yours is that, um, I will use the term that makes, even if it's just 2% of people, that makes them feel comfortable. So right. even if it's like, oh, you know, and all, people are always using these polls and they're like, oh, well only 4% of people use it. And it's like, okay, well, you don't have to use it then, um, but I wanna make sure that everyone in our audience feels comfortable. So in order to do that, I will use the term that includes everyone. And so while that used to be LAN X, I think now it's leaning more towards Latin Latine, And so we are using that more frequently now in our writing. Um, I think that people also feel and again, you know, you have you have so many different groups that are following Latina, but there are groups that feel that Latinx is a colonized um, term. You know, it's something that was made by Americans. um, I
1: I understand the negative aspects and negative dimensions of the word. But damn, they're using it as a slur now. And that's the part that I'm like, let's hold on your horses, bro. It was never originated with that. And I, I've never felt like if somebody calls me a Latino, like it's as a slur or anything like that. So I think people have exaggerated that. And I just feel like whatever you're comfortable with, because maybe my father feels comfortable with Latino as opposed to Latinx.
2: I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. And even Hispanic, like it's so interesting because a lot of younger people really don't like Hispanic. But a lot of older generations have grown up with it and have heard it their whole lives. So it's just what they know. And it's not because they're okay with, you know, the colonizer. And it's not because they're trying to consider themselves more Spanish. I mean, a lot of people, it's just the classification that was used for them. At the end of the day, these are all classifications and terms that have been created to define us. I agree. I think this is a this is this is a part of the identity politics that I think are um, defining of our generation. Um, and I think that we just, as a platform have to adapt to, um, you know, the way that, that people feel in the moment and just make sure that we're inclusive of everyone. But we definitely, you know, sometimes we post things recently, we've been posting things with Latinx and we get so many, I mean, first of all, yeah, our comments are always crazy. But we have gotten a lot of comments that are like, I'm unfollowing you because yeah. you're an X. Like, never use Latin X.
1: I've gotten the same thing too. Before we continue with our interview with Camila Legaspi, I want to talk to you about the All of Us research program. Hispanic culture is pop culture. We are leaving our mark everywhere from music to food to fashion. One place where we need to make an impact is scientific research. All of Us wants to include our voices in research so we have a better idea of how unique we are genetically and to see if we're prone to other diseases. Did you know individuals of Puerto Rican descent are roughly twice as likely to develop diabetes as someone with South American heritage? Join the revolution by participating in All of Us visit joinallofus.org/highlyrelevant Now back to our interview with Camila Legaspi So now that we've defined Latin X and how that has interweaved itself into the editorial tell me about your editor in chief and why is she the right person for this
2: So our so we don't have an editor in chief we have an editor at
1: large What's the difference in title in title uh, semantics
2: The editor at large is more overseeing um, everything rather than having everyday constant role in the team where you're sort of um, approving every single thing. Like editor at large is much more of like an overseer. Mm. Um, Berkey has been editor at large at Latina since I was there. Um, and again, so she's the only person from the previous team that has been around, um, and that has stuck around. Um, I think the editor at large is the, the term that we use just, and, and again, I think that we think of her as an editor chief. We also have a managing editor, um, which I will get to, and kind of those two roles together, I feel like sort of make up the editor in chief. So it's kind of split in two. And I think that just has to do with the fact that we are new and trying to um, figure out exactly what the team will look like. Um, again, like we really just started building out the team at the end of May. So it's only been a few months. Um, and I think the goal ultimately, yes, is to bring in an editor-in-chief who's young and has experienced, who can really align with our voice. Um, and that's something that you know I do think in the next few months we will actively start looking for. But in the meantime, um, Berkey, like I said, um, has all of the qualities of an absolutely phenomenal leader who has kind of taken on that position. Um, And so, again, with Berkey, it really comes down to experience. She just knows the industry really well. She knows um, the reactions that people will have to certain things. She knows what content has historically done well, which content hasn't.
1: An invaluable asset.
2: Invaluable, like it is. It is so helpful to have her on the team, and she also just knows a lot of things that we've done in the past. She knows um, New York Fashion Week and which stories work and which stories don't work, and she has done that, you know, many, 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 many times. So she knows exactly what works and what doesn't. She is also Mexican American. She's from LA, um, so it's definitely very useful to have her kind of um, complement my experience with New York. Like, I feel like I cover a lot of East Coast stuff and she covers a lot of West Coast stuff. And she has that back, you know, she grew up in LA, her whole, you know, she grew up in an intergenerational household. She has a lot of experience with sort of LA Latino culture. Um, And she, as managing editor, I think takes on a lot of the roles that editor in chief would have. You know, she oversees every single article that's being written. She oversees all the editing that's being done. She talks to all the writers. She assigns stories. She handles um, kind of new pitches that come in. She um, she will send pitches to writers. And um, so she is kind of the, the organization um, and the operations behind a lot of what we do editorially at Latina. She also went to Princeton with me. Um, so I... And, and I knew her at Princeton, but we actually were connected post-Princeton. And so um, I think kind of her plus Berkey and plus myself, we sort of make up the core of what is um, the editorial at Latina. I certainly have more of a, um, my work is much more with what we do on our, um, on our social media, what, all the video content that we do. Um, I handle much more of that. But definitely when it comes to the development of ideas, even to the development of series, um, we all work together.
1: Are we getting a magazine?
2: I hope so. I hope hope that that's where this
0: goes.
1: Because right now this relaunch is strictly a digital relaunch. It's strictly
2: digital. And I think that the the unfortunate thing is, is that I just think that's the direction that we're going in, you know, as a whole i think that Mm. yes there are still magazines that have made it through and survive but just with every coming year everything becomes more and more digital um i think what would be my kind of dream is to have these sort of like limited edition print issues that come up
1: quarterly or
2: yeah with certain with certain um you know months or with certain special events you know our like it was our 25th anniversary this year, but let's say we do, you know, we have a 30th anniversary, something that would be great would be to, to, to issue a print magazine for that. And it's certainly, well,
1: everything is becoming a hybrid. I mean, if work from yeah. home and the office is now becoming a hybrid school, I know. education is becoming a hybrid between personal. So why shouldn't magazines have their hybrid release schedule as well?
2: It's so true. We live in a world of <sighs> flexibility now, I think. So um I, it really comes down to two uh, at the end of the day is like to budget. So I Listen,
1: think- I used to I used to collect Latina magazine, GQ magazines and everything and I would not read maybe 8 out of the 12 issues. And I'm like, "Damn, I never got to read it, but I would read maybe something online or, you know, really quick. So I don't need 12 issues, but I do maybe need 4 because those 4 will a drive at the doctor's office. Whatever maybe I can handle 4 a year.
2: Oh, 100%. I think that I think that I I certainly have that in mind once we can build ourselves out a bit more, I would love that.
1: Tell me about the voice of the magazine now. How would you describe it?
2: It's one of those questions that I'm like, kind of changes every kind of changes depending on the month. But no, I think the voice of the magazine is just the, the new generation of Latinos. You know, um, a lot of, I I will say a lot of our audience is first gen. Um, I think in a lot of ways it is not totally different from who I am, who Alyssa is, you know, young, 25-year-old Latino, Latina, Latine, who either grandparents came here, whose parents came here, who are interested in culture, who are interested in entertainment, who want to learn more about people that have made it in in their community. I think that's a big part of it. I think that the voice that we have is... Shifting a little bit more from aspirational to inspirational. Um, whereas Latina, I think, used to be kind of this glossy lifestyle, more, more glamorous. Glamorous is the right
1: word. Is glamour no longer uh, a desire of the reader? Magazines, for the most part, female magazines, for the most part, their, their identity was always catered around celebrity and beauty. And a lot of the beauty was because advertisement and revenues were coming in strictly from that beauty business. So even if you hated beauty or you didn't want to be a part of the beauty business, you kind of had to because beauty brands were looking for female beauty readers to sell their stuff to, especially the Hispanic woman, which has a $1.7 trillion purchasing power in the United States. Celebrity and, and, and glamour beauty. Is that no longer a part of the DNA of the new magazine? It will
2: always be a part of it. And it is a part of it in the sense that, like, we are trying every day, every week, every year to highlight up and coming celebrities, up and coming musicians, up and coming actors who are, um, you know, breaking boundaries in their industries. It's no longer, I think, the main facet of the magazine. And I think when it comes to glamour, too. Glamour is so interwoven with this idea, I think, of like westernized beauty and Eurocentric. Absolutely. Appearance. And so it's it's just moving away from that. I mean, Latina historically had a reputation as well of having, you know, lighter skinned Latinas on their cover. Um, and so, and that I think was tied to this idea of luxury and glamour and aspect.
1: And colonialism at the end of the day, 500 years of colonialism, which you understand very well as a Mexicana oh, and what the Spaniards did and the trauma that still insists. There's this new neocolonialism uh, surging that's happening in Mexico right now. And there's a movie called 499 de Rodrigo Reyes that essentially talked about this colonial aspect of us. I happen to think that Latinos, Latinas, we're all entrenched in white culture. And that is not something we should be ashamed of. We are a byproduct of our society. We are a byproduct of being born in this country of white culture. We are the number one demographic that over indexes in movies in so many categories that are not Latino, but yes. are white. Yes. <laughs> 40% of Latinos are now marrying white people, and white people are marrying Latinos yes. more than ever, according to the census. Yeah. So What we're seeing, and this is just my view, this is just my view as a, as a person in this business for the last 25 years, is that we used to deny our, our, our desires and likes for whiteness. We're the superpower race. We can be any race we want. We could be Black, Indigenous, Asian, and have our Hispanic l- ethnicity. No one else can really do that. So if we want to be white, we can be white. And if we want to be Latino at the same exact time, we can and I just feel that at some point, the editorial voice needs to embrace a form of whiteness that we, at the end of the day, deep down inside, we might not say it publicly, but we love white culture. We love those Avenger movies. We love all that stuff that happens at the MTV VMAs and the Billboard and the American Music Awards and the Grammys and the Met Gala that has nothing to do with to Latino stuff. We love it. So we should include it as part of our identity.
2: It's, you know it's true. I think the way I see it is that we also just love pop culture. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're, and that has to do in part with the fact that we are like this, we make up so much of the population, but we love pop culture. And when something that we have talked about a lot is, you know, do we, you know, if there is a new Avengers movie and the protagonists are non-Latino, like, do we bring them on our platform? Because our entire audience loves them Um, so what do we do? And we have, we actually did kind of adjust our, um, mission statement and in our relaunch, we put this, but we are going to work towards a place where we are amplifying Latin voices and we are focusing on Latin stories, but we also want to put out content that can be seen through a Latin lens. So I say this because I think that a lot of Latino, Latina, Latina writers have experienced in their careers, you know, having to write about Latin music, having to write about only Latin things. And a lot of these writers, you know, they want to write about some exhibit that they went to go see at a museum last week. They want to write about the most recent, um, you know, Russian movie that they watched. They want to write about things that aren't only Latin. And so we want to move to a place, I think, that where we are you know, hiring Latin writers who can also write about these other things and they, but they're showing it through a Latin lens inherently by the fact that they are Latin, they are showing it to the world through their lens. So that is certainly a place that we're moving towards because I feel that hundred percent, you know, I'm like, if there's someone who wants to write about White Lotus, the, the most recent HBO show that everyone loves, like they should be able to write about it. And, um, and we should be able to provide that content to our audience because a lot of them are watching the show, I'm and at the end of
1: the day, you're an American brand, Camila.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, I certainly think that our focus will always be Latin voices and amplifying those, and the majority of our content will always be that. But, um, we do also, you know, if there's a sh- like when what was that show that everyone was watching, Tiger King? Like, if when Tiger King was out, and this was before I was a Latina, but like. We should be able to talk about that with our audience as well. Um, I
1: think that this is a great moment for Latina magazine to really explore uh so much of our transitional identity because we're in the middle of a transition. We're not at the at the finish line. We we just left this scarring issue of like having to separate our identity from our parents because we never really wanted to do that, but now we're older. We got our kids, families, and now we're starting to look at everything very differently. And you're like, am I a Latino, Latino, or am I an American, American? But if I'm in the middle, then why don't I belong in both? And I feel like I'm lost. I'm in limbo. And all these questions that we're all having conversations about, including now white and Black and Asian culture in one, more Latinas are now marrying Asian people. I have a Puerto Rican friend that married a Japanese woman that has Puerto Rican, Japanese kids in Tokyo. This is the new generation, this multicultural, mixed race, new majority, ready America that we're living in, and I just feel like our content needs to reflect that mix. That's what makes us unique.
2: A hundred percent. I'm so on board there. And we actually have been. I mean, we've been working. We just hired an, an Asian Latina writer. We we did a student. Wow, that's an amazing. Latina artist like that's again that's like a demographic that literally has been forgotten or not spoken about by the Latin uh, community. I mean, of course, Afro-Latinos and Black Latinos have always been underrepresented, always um, have been kind of standing behind, I think, these lighter-skinned Latinos when it comes to representation. But you have also all these other like you you have Black Latinos, you have Indigenous Latinos, you have Asian Latinos that have been behind the scenes and no one talks about, and it's like their time is now. And we have so many cultures to represent, and we want to do that in, in the next. Which
1: now leads me to the question you hate answering, but I have to ask it because you kind of alluded to it at the beginning of our conversation. Who is your target audience? What does a Latina look like today in 2021 in America?
2: It it looks like someone, and I and I will say I do think it's someone between the ages of 18 to 34 i do think so i know that's a wide um a wide range 25 to 34 is perhaps the better the better age frame most of our audience falls within that 40 percent of our audience is between 24 and 35 is someone within that age frame who comes from a, a latin culture in some way or another they can be full latino they can be half latino they can be a, a quarter latino who feels a sense of pride. To their culture, who can feel, who perhaps feels a sense of confusion about their culture, who wants to learn more, who wants to see themselves reflected in media, um, and who has felt that there hasn't necessarily been a place where they've been able to um, find all the content that they've wanted to find related mm. to their identity and their culture. And so that is kind of at the end of the day, it's like, it's not like our reader. or or, or our average reader is this person who lives here and likes to do these things. Um, And and I will say when it does come to demographic, certainly I do think that our reader is someone who, you know, speaks English, 90% of our readers speak English, um, is within that age frame. Um, But beside that, you know, we have people from all different cultures, um, all different parts of the country, I do think the majority of our readers are are in uh, New York, LA, Chicago, Houston. So we do have kind of the the more coastal um, cities, the more liberal cities. That's certainly part of our of our viewership. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I I do hope and I would and I think that the reader and the viewer, and this this is from the beginning and the inception of Latina, is someone who can't find this content elsewhere. Um, and I, and I always say like, if, if we can, if we can make at least one, viewer out there or one reader either feel, uh, less embarrassed about something about their culture or feel inspired that they can do something that they felt they haven't done before or read a story about someone who looks like them. And for the first time, feel like they resonate from that story. We've done our job. Like we, we are successful then. Um, and so that's kind of the direction I want to go and I want people to feel inspired and I want them to feel understood and I feel like um, every conversation I have had with people that we've done content with or interviewed or put on our platform somehow I'm like oh you get it like you get and, and you get it way more and, and more in ways that I don't even get it like like there's just there's a, sense of um what sisterhood brotherhood familial familiarity within all these conversations we have and so um i want the i want i want the reader um whoever that 18 to 24 year old who lives in new york la houston who comes from this first Who's generation, trans generation. exactly it is tough it is tough to have kind of a a more generalized uh i think um demographic, I do think that is a hard thing. I think it would be way easier if we were like, oh, we're just going to appeal to, you know, Latinos in New York and we're going to focus on, um, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and Mexicans because those are the kind of greatest demographics. And but no, like that's not who we are.
1: I wanted to ask you about bilingualism. Bilingualism has been a hallmark trait of Latina magazine, since I can remember. There used to be pages in English, and then literally the next page was in Spanish. And then they stopped, and it was like some stuff were in Spanish and English, and then I think they tried a Spanglish thing at one point. They were also in the process of experimentation. What does the language tenets for the magazine consist of today?
2: So- Predominantly English.
1: What are we talking about? 70, 30 or just hundred percent?
2: Mm, I would say 95% English right now. Um, because we do have a lot of younger Latinos who don't speak Spanish. Um, and I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's representative of them being less Latino.
1: You don't feel that preserving the Spanish language is a part of your responsibility?
2: Listen, personally, personally, I do, you know, I was, I was raised, I wasn't allowed to speak English at home. I speak Spanish with my siblings and my dad, I only speak Spanish to them. Um, So I am coming from a background of like, being told my whole life, like, preserve, preserve your Spanish, preserve your Mexican identity.
1: So why doesn't that translate professionally then?
2: because it's so different for every single family. I mean, there's a lot of families and a lot of parents that don't have the privilege or time to be able to speak only in Spanish to their kids. You know, there's a lot of families that the parents are working all day, every day. They, mm. don't, they can't, you know, necessarily dictate these rules to their kids. There's a lot of families that come from other countries and feel marginalized if they speak Spanish or feel judged if they speak Spanish. So their instinct is to protect their, themselves and their children and to speak english there's a lot of families that want to get away from trauma um from you know political chaos and want to leave their countries behind and so in doing that they they want to t- uh, speak to their kids in english um and so i just think it ranges so much and kind of in the same way that um we use latin x because we want everyone to feel included i think we use english and we Primarily put content on English because we want everyone to be able to read it, regardless of what they were taught. And I do think, and it's tough because I have I have dealt with this um, since Princeton. You know, when I got to college, I felt like I met so many Latinos, and I my first question would be like, "Do you speak Spanish?" Or I feel like I would like try to speak them in Spanish, and a lot of them didn't speak Spanish. And I remember I had a few friends who grew up in Texas in these border towns everyone in their communities were Latino, um, but they didn't speak Spanish. And that didn't mean at all that they were like any less Latino than I was. It was just something that was part of their community. It was just how they were raised. And a lot of the people that we work with actually don't, some of them do, but some of them don't speak Spanish. I will say, you know, there are people we interview on our platform that don't speak English very well. So I have taken on every Spanish interview we've done. I would say some of them have been done by some of our other writers, but I do mostly the Spanish interviews and we do have those because there are a lot of people that um, we want to hear from. Like, you know, uh, we, when the protests in in Colombia were happening, we did an Instagram live with Goyo, um, an artist who's Colombian. And it was the whole thing was in Spanish. It was one of our most viewed lives um was one of the most popular ones
1: so then how do you handle that balance is it sometimes it's in spanish sometimes it's in english isn't that confusing
2: it is confusing it is confusing and i think that at the end of the day um we do want to weave in more spanish pieces because there are also those people that really do prioritize spanish and like i said there's probably a percentage of people who follow us who don't speak english and so we do want to weave those pieces in. And again, I think that comes with our growth. So even right now, there's one piece that we're considering putting out in Spanish. So I think those will start to trickle in. And while it will be confusing, it is part of our culture that there are so many different identities mixed in there. I think that what we can do once we have the resources and the time is to put out um, you know, pieces in Spanish with translations in English so that'll be the best case scenario i think for us but um but we certainly do focus in english and that's something that i have had to get much more comfortable with because my instinct when i meet anyone who's latino is to immediately speak in spanish but um but but i have i have certainly kind of adjusted that mindset uh,
1: i wanted to now ask you about the competitive landscape in the marketplace for hispanic media latino magazine is it competing with people in Espanol? Is it competing with Chica? Is it competing with Ala USA? Is it competing with Remezcla? Is it competing with NBC Latino? Who is your competition? Who do you see? This is our competition. Is it everybody is the universe? and where do you fit in all of it?
2: Right. Um, I think some of the ones that you named could be seen. Um, as competitors, I will say, you know, like people in Espanol, it's in, all in Spanish, right? So that is probably um, some a magazine that, that used to be more of a competition when we had more of a bilingual component, but less so now just because everything we do is in Spanish. I think that, that uh, the, the competition and the platforms that, that we, um, I think, can be seen alongside are the ones that are digital only the ones that are really appealing to younger generations um, and the ones that are kind of focusing more on cultural phenomenon rather than just entertainment uh, because that is really what we're moving away from. And when you kind of start to narrow it down there, the more that we start describing like what we're doing more and more of those platforms that you named actually fall away as competition because they're not doing that. And that was kind of one of the, things that I realized going into working at Latina in terms of what existed and what didn't exist. Like I always said, and again, I'm biased. I I grew up in New York. I'm a huge New Yorker fan. I love the profiles. I love reading these like in-depth profiles about people um, that have done really incredible things. Like there is no platform that is doing that for Latinos. Like we... Like that is, I always say, like, oh, it, what's my dream? My dream is to have some component of like a Latino New Yorker running through our blood because I think that you have a lot of a lot of Latin media and Latin platforms. It's kind of like celebrity lifestyle culture um, that is a bit, I think, more. Um, and this isn't bad, but just a bit more superficial in terms of like-
1: information. Vacuous. Yeah.
2: yeah, and so I think our goal is to just get more nuanced and to get- deeper. Substance. Substance, <laughs> yeah, substance. I do, I think so. I think that we we want people who, um, we want people who are really, like really, really interested in, in reading longer stories and getting to know, things about different cultures um, to, to read us. And so while all of the platforms you named, I think are are great and are doing their own thing, I don't think any of them are, are doing what we're trying to do. I think the, I, I do think the publication that comes closest, Remezcla, um, I do, I think, I you know, I think they're doing really great things in terms of um, music and film and exploring a lot of really important topics in those but it is also, you know, focused on music and film. So um, we really Yeah and
1: then are- I think you have Somos from Somos- Refinery 29 that just kind of recently came out.
2: Somos recently came out. Somos is backed by Ulta. Again, Somos is doing really cool things, but Somos is a vertical of Refinery 29.
1: Right. It's-, it's not its own it's entity. not its yeah. own
2: entity and Latinos, I'm sorry, but like we're not a vertical. We're a whole damn thing.
1: <laughs> We're a whole platform. You say it, girl. You so, say it. Yes. I don't know who that would be <laughs> I'm trouble. sick of these verticals. <laughs> they, they put us in verticals on, on everything. It was a member of Fox Latino. And it was just like, stop it. That's,
2: that's where I'm at. And I'm biased, obviously, because I'm leading Latina. But I'm just like, we
1: are not a vertical. Bueno, mi última pregunta, just to let you go. And thank you so much for the conversation. It's been amazing. How would you define... A win for Latina. How would you define success for it, and what is your vision for the next for your tenure? Let's just put it that way. As long as you're at Latina Magazine, what does it look in its final product?
2: I think it's that it becomes, you know, everyone has their five, four, three platforms that they check every morning, that they read, and that they go to, and they scroll to on Instagram or Twitter. If we are one of those for the majority of young Latinos, um, in this country, that is a success. That is my dream. You know, I think that that um I want us to be kind of one of those platforms that people check by instinct. Um, I want us to build up um content. And I and I mentioned this previously that if it makes at least one person feel comfortable, feel understood, feel um proud, I think we've 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 been successful. And I think to become to be. Uh, also in a position and this is obviously coming from a more business perspective where we have brands coming to us and wanting to work with us and not just because we're Latino and not just because we can get them something that other platforms can get them but because we are a widely respected popular publication Um, so that's the goal and I think that there have been Parts in since 1996, where Latina has been that I think there, there are times where Latina has been at its peak and super popular back when it was a print magazine. Um, And I run into people all the time. And these are definitely older people. This is more Generation X people that, um, that that say, I, I, I was I used to have subscriptions to four magazines and Latina was one of them. And I would read it every single week. And I loved it. And my mom didn't let me read it, but I would hide in my closet and I would read it. And like that, if we can get to that with this new generation, then we're successful. And I will say, we recently did a poll on our Instagram where we said, um, we were asking a few different questions. You know, we were asking, are you first generation, second generation? We asked what term people prefer to use. And one of the questions we asked was, did you know about Latina previously to this year or did you find out about it this year? And 37% of our audience, and we have nearly half a million followers on Instagram, 37% of our audience responded that they learned about us this year. And so that was a huge win. That's a huge win for us. Like the fact that 37% of our viewers just found out about Latina and we just relaunched it is is a success for us. So we, um, you know, we're we're proud of that number
1: well i was gonna say is this your first podcast interview because i know you've been talking to the la times but have you done podcasts
2: this is the first one i did one with um not podcast but i did a video one with bloomberg but this is the first podcast so i i hope to hear my voice later and not be annoyed
1: Just before I wrap up here, here are three land tracks you might want to add to your playlist, this weekend. Una Nota, J Balvin Sech Martox y Gian Rojas, Mírate, de el paso. A Vamos a el el Daikiri, Simón Grossman. And that's it for episode 161 of the Highly Relevant podcast. I'd like to thank Camila Legaspi for being on the show. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and have them subscribe and leave a review. You'll be helping us reach many more people. If you'd like to get in touch with me, reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant.